Hi everyone, thanks for making time to check out the Black Studies podcast. My name is Daniel McNeil. I'm the Queen's National Scholar Chair in Black Studies at Queen's University. And I'm delighted to be co-hosting the Black Studies podcast with Sally El-Sayed and Alador Berakatan. My name is Sally El-Sayed and I'm a recent Masters of Architecture graduate and the editor and producer of this podcast. And I'm Alder Berkatab, and I'm currently a second-year student at McMaster University in the Bachelor of Health Sciences program and an associate producer for the Black Studies podcast. Over the next six weeks, Sally, Alador, and myself will be joined by global thought leaders to explore creative, collaborative, and interdisciplinary work in Black Studies that engages the connections between the arts, social justice, and decolonial thought. To kick off season one of the podcast, we're delighted to co-host a conversation between Deb Thompson and Tari Ajadi about Blackness and belonging. Dr. Deborah Thompson is the Canada Research Chair in Racial Inequality in Democratic Societies at McGill University and a leading scholar of the comparative politics of race. Deb's teaching and research interests focus on the relationships among race, the state, and inequality in democratic societies. She has taught at University of Oregon, Northwestern University, Ohio University, and held a Shirk postdoctoral fellowship with the Center for American Political Studies at Harvard. Tari Ajadi is a PhD candidate in political science at Dalhousie University and a Black Studies pre-doctoral fellow at Queen's University. A British Nigerian immigrant to Canada, Tari aims to produce research that supports and engages with Black communities across the country. He is a co-founder of the Nova Scotia Policing Policy Working Group, a member of the Board of Directors of the Health Association of African Canadians, as well well as a board member with the East Coast Prison Justice Society. Yeah, this should be great. Deb is an incredible scholar. We both attended a wonderful symposium at Northwestern University in Chicago. I think it was in around 2014 that celebrated the life and work of Richard Eiton, a trailblazing Black scholar who mapped the aspirations and achievements of Black Atlantic people. So I'm... Looking forward to talking with her about Richard's life and work, which has been such an important inspiration for this podcast and stimulated our interest in bringing together activists, artists and academics to discuss creative and collaborative knowledge making within, beyond and outside the university. And Tari is a delight. He's an amazing activist, intellectual and I'm looking forward to continuing the conversations that I've been having with him during his fellowship at Queen's, where he's doing such important work on community actors and Black self-determination before he joins Deb as a professor in the political science department at McGill University. Hi, Deb. Hi, Terry. Many thanks for joining us today. We're really looking forward to talking with you about your creative and collaborative work on blackness and belonging. And we're also hoping to think with you, to dream with you 
about the search for promising and fantastic futures. You've written articles together and developed intellectual projects that speak to each other in such interesting ways. I would love if we could start this conversation off with you telling us a bit about how you first met or encountered each other's work. Cool. All right. I mean, the thing is, is that in the funny kind of pandemic way, like how we met is really boring. It was on Zoom, right? Like it was just like like everyone else, like in, in 2020, it was just like, cool. Well, I mean, we spoke a bit on Twitter first, but but I think a more, in, at least from my end, I don't know about you, Deb, but the more interesting story for me is about how I got to know about your work, which was actually at the start of my master's degree. So I came into Dalhousie um, and I think I wanted to do something about like voting behavior in African diasporic communities between different generations. And it's really cool research, but like it's not necessarily what I'm inclined to do. And also voting behavior stuff, you, you need to be really good at statistics and I'm not. So, so that wasn't quite, you know, the, the, the route for me to go down. But I came across Deb's book in, I think it was maybe uh, sept late September of 2017. And so I read the schematic state cover to cover and it blew my mind. I, I, it, it named a lot of things that I'd kind of seen because I used to work in government. I used to, I, I was working embedded kind of within a, a health department. I was working for a politician. And I saw all the ways that data would be used, that data would be mobilized. I saw all of the, the ways that people made particular kind of populations more legible or not based on the kind of ideas that came from looking at the census or looking at, you know, different kind of descriptive health statistics that Statistics Canada would have. And, and, and I watched that process happen, but I couldn't name it and I couldn't give you any kind of political analysis based on it. I just like, okay, well, this is the thing that's happening. This is politics. And reading Deb's book just blew my mind because it made me realize that it was connected to this far deeper process of kind of embedding and transforming and translating these racial ideas into the stuff, the everyday stuff that makes this whole thing go, this whole state go, right? Like, and that was so incredible to me. So I, between that and the fact that at the time, Ontario was just releasing its Anti-Racism Act. So there was this discussion there about race-based data collection and whether this was a good thing or not. This is when Doug Ford um, was, I think he was on the scene, but he wasn't elected yet. So all of this stuff is happening at the same time. And I literally switched my entire master's degree topic because of reading the schematic state. So that's how I that's how I met Dev when Dev did not know who I was or what I was or, or where I was or, or whoever I was. But I think that's an interesting conversation at least to, to start. I don't know if I've actually told you that story before. You have never told me that story. And that's, that's, that's so nice. You're like, you're like the other person who read my book. Like I've met like now like four people. So, so that's really good for an academic book. That's incredible. Um, so I, I knew Tari, Tari's dissertation advisor and I kind of, we, we kind of overlapped in PhD world. Like we're kind of in the same world. Look, like Canadian political science is small. This is super, this is super important. It's Canada's small, um, you know, and, and Canadian political science is small. So chances are there are six degrees of separation, not even six degrees. There's like two degrees of separation between everyone. Um, and so, and, and 
Tari's um, advisor, Kristen, had mentioned him to me, first of all. Um, and then, so I knew that I wanted to write something for um, the Globe and Mail on the anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Um, and I kind of like, I knew that there'd be a lot of thought pieces coming out and I really wanted to write something that had a Canadian focus um, that took, you know, both kind of the, that took 2020 in, in retrospect, um, both as, as the year of, of COVID and the year of these, these mass global uprisings. Um, and then, you know, Terry and I were Twitter friends as all black people are. And, and then, um, I think we might've been on like a panel together or we might've been in, in the same kind of workshop. And I just, I remember like I emailed you and I was like, Hey, do you want to like write this? Yeah. <laughs> in the global mail with me? And Tari was understandably like, absolutely. Um, and we ended up writing together and it was so, it was so great. You know, it was such a, a great collaboration. Um, in part because I think that we we wrote something really good, to be honest. I think like that, that we wrote an article called The Two Pandemics um, that was published, you know, on the, the one year anniversary of, of George Floyd's murder. It was in the national newspaper. It got a lot of traction. It got a lot of hate, but it got a lot of traction. And um, I think that it was important to kind of have that, um, you know, that those thoughts out in, in the world, like in that particular outlet, which is not known, of course, you know, Globe Mail is Canada's national newspaper, quote unquote, but like doesn't publish much on race, you know, really um, in any kind of critical way. Um, and yeah, and so, and and now we're, we're friends in, in real life and Tari is joining uh, my department at McGill uh, shortly. And it's very, very exciting for all of us. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty exciting thing for me as well. I say pretty because, you know, as Daniel, I'm sure is aware, the, the classic, um, the, the British affect is to play down the things that you're actually incredibly excited about. And so I'm a very enthusiastic person and I'm constantly like in this weird linguistic way, tamping things down <laughs> to try not to like show this boundless, like bunny rabbit enthusiasm. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled about it. And I'm thrilled that we're friends in real life because it also, you know, it, it's cool to be friends with people that you admire. So that, that's, that's, that's a great, kind of summary of it i guess are you gonna be are you gonna be this complimentary for the entire podcast because it makes me deeply uh, uncomfortable when people say nice i'll, I'll try me. i'll try not to be i'll try i'll try to roast you a little okay. bit just to just to balance things out there we go <laughs> okay good good so it's so nice to hear how you both met and just kind of how you both inspired each other's work um and specifically on the two pandemics would you guys like to touch a little bit about you know, the inspiration behind that, what went into crafting it and kind of just the end product and, and how that felt releasing such a such a powerful piece. Yeah, let me let me start. Um, I'm trying to think think back to it because, you know, now it's two years ago, right? This has been the second anniversary of George Floyd's murder. Um, so I was thinking for a while about, you know, the global uprisings that, that happened in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder and kind of and why, you know, and I think that um, two years out, we don't have a coherent narrative of why it was that this kind of singular act of cruelty, um, you know, ignited the mass uprisings, um, you know, not just in Minneapolis, which, you know, was kind of poised to, to boil over, but, you know, everywhere. Um, and 
I was thinking, and to me, it seemed like like COVID actually had a lot to do with it. You know, like like the fact that that these uprisings happened in the middle of this global pandemic wasn't coincidental. Um, and it, it, you know, and I hadn't seen a lot of work that that took kind of those two phenomena like seriously and took them together. You know, the the two phenomena being like anti-black racism on the one hand and, and COVID nineteen on the other. Um, that looked at the ways in which they intersect. Like I'd seen various bits of data about like, we know that COVID-19 disproportionately affected like black folks, right? We know that black people are more likely to die, to be infected, um, to be infected at their workplaces. And there are all these, you know, socioeconomic indicators that kind of um, made black people more susceptible to to catching the virus and, and to succumbing to it. Um, but I hadn't seen a lot of work that really like kind of thought like deeply and, and carefully and diligently about um, COVID-19 and anti-Black racism and the ways in which the responses to COVID-19 ended up like reifying at best and exacerbating at worst, you know, like the, like the police state, you know, the ways in which being under lockdown gave these astronomical powers to the police you know, to, to ticket, to, to surveil, to control, um, and, and gave more powers to like public health, uh, which as many black people know is not, you know, it, it, it is not a source of, of emancipation for so many of us. It is in fact coercive and punitive to, um, to engage with public health officials in, in this country and others. And, um, you know, Tari's work uh, was was really um, I think speaks to you know a lot of the ways that like black people experience these more coercive and punitive arms uh, of the state uh, and so we were able to kind of draw from this like deep well of information that Tari already had um, in engaging with like the way that that both the police and public health are kind of like performing the same function right They're, they they act in very similar ways um, even as like I don't think people. I don't think people see them at both as being coercive and yet they're so frequently experienced as being as being coercive um and so we wanted to really tie the, those two these two phenomena together um and it was you know i i've co-authored with um some other people and it was just like it was, it was so fun and easy to to go to co-author with with tari um you know they, there's a there's a there's a good saying and then it's like never like never be roommates with your best friend. And also if you're in academia, don't write with your best friend, but like, you know, but like it worked really, really well, like thankfully. Um, Tari, I don't know, what do you think about? Yeah, um, so for me, it, I, I think very similarly, I think that like, firstly to going to policing and public health, right? There are, the, there are these two areas where the, actors by which i mean the state has a unique and specific control over a person's body and so that that kind of control and that ability to coerce manifests itself in kind of distinct ways in terms of power and i think that covid and the uprising at the same time helped to illustrate quite clearly the ways that the state was willing to use its power to coerce primarily to harm black people, right? And this is around the world, this phenomenon happens again and again and again and again. And so when Deb approached me to write the piece in, in a lot of ways, you know, having, having lived through that time, 
there was still this kind of feeling of mourning that was happening. I, I think that there's, there's this, there was this heaviness that was sitting, um, certainly on my heart, about the, the, the harms and the horrors of that time. And there was, I think, a moment where there was maybe a hope that we could push beyond. And I wanted to write at that tension. I think that we did a really good job of that, right? We we wanted to to articulate the the ways that, in fact, experiencing such horrors can allow us to maybe dream of a different possibility. And maybe we can build that. And maybe if we choose to do differently, then we can discard of some of these things altogether, right? We can discard of the surveillance. Um, we can discard of the of the what I think it's uh, Vesla Weaver and Joe Soss call this distorted responsiveness, where it feels like the state via policing and via public health is everywhere and nowhere at the same time. It's everywhere you don't want it to be, and it's nowhere where you need it to be, right? And I think that like it's it, it's those kinds of themes that we wanted to bring out, and we wanted to make sure that it was rooted in this country, because you know, as as many of us um, might remember, but some might forget. Two days after George Floyd was killed, Regis Korczynski Paquette was killed, right? A week after that, Chantel Moore was killed. A week after that, Rodney Levy was killed, right? Like this, there's this, there's this cascading series of crises that are never ending. And of course, I'm saying this right now when we know, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that um, someone was killed in Scarborough for holding a BB gun. I think it was this past week that someone was killed in Montreal. Um, for having shoplifted, right? This is this is a a series of crises that just manifest over and over and over. And I think we wanted to write directly to that um, and to 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 name it. I mean, the ways that these 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 horrors were overlapping, and at the same time, there was promise, however slim, of disrupting them. So I, I think that's kind of where we were coming from with the piece. In many of our conversations about what a Black Studies program at Queen's might look like and feel like, we've cited and engaged with Richard Eitens' work about what it means to go in search of promising futures and the Black fantastic. And when I hear you talking about the links between public health and policing. I'm reminded of Richard's work on prophylactic states and duppy states. When you're talking about George Floyd and about how the violence of the initial act of the murder is extended and perpetuated through the circulation of social media and video. And then I'm hearing Tari speak about how we make hope and optimism practical. I'm also thinking about one of the quotes on the jacket cover of Richard's book. That is to say, I'm reflecting on Paul Gilroy's comments that there are stimulating arguments on every page of Richard's book and that it is a tremendously important text for anyone who wants to seriously examine the political aspirations 
and achievements of Black Atlantic people. When I recently had a conversation with Paul about his life and work for a book that I'm writing on soul rebels and Black Atlantic intellectuals, he talked about how he wouldn't watch the video of George Floyd's murder. He consciously sought to prevent that pain or to limit that violence from inflicting harm on him. But in the same conversation, he also reflected on his life-changing experiences with music and how he still kept the ticket from the Bob Marley concert that he went to in London when he was a young soul rebel in the 1970s. And in a similar way to people prolonging the pain of George Floyd's death on video, often for political reasons or activist reasons or to foster and support social movements. My sense was that Paul held on to the ticket of Bob Marley's concert to prolong the concert's pleasure and to connect it to the types of politically infused acts of pleasure that were so important to his intellectual development and his activism in the 1970s and 80s. And I'm wondering, I know, Terry, that you've been engaging with Little Sims and other creative artists. I'm wondering if you and Deb could talk a little bit more about, you know, not just how your work is intervening to think about the prolonging of pain and suffering, but also how we might think about the circulation of politically infused acts of pleasure. Oh, I would love to speak to this, Daniel, and thank you so much for, for weaving those threads together because that that is exactly... That is exactly, you know, uh, of course, bringing in Paul Gilroy's voice. That's exactly how I think about these things, particularly through the lens of music, right? So music for me is incredibly cathartic, but it's also this way of grounding myself in this kind of like aesthetic call to action, so to speak, right? And so when, I, when I'm listening to Little Sims, for example, and it's funny because we, we when you mentioned Lil Sims as well, um, in some of our previous comments, it was so edifying because I, 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 I felt form attachments to these artists, right? Like I, 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 they inspire me. They like carry me through. They're like, I, you know, to, to, for want of a better term, my better angels, right? And I'm like, well, one day I'll create something that might um, motivate someone the same way these things motivate me. And so to speak to, I guess, specifically to Little Sims, um, and I could go on about a whole bunch of other artists as well, but to speak specifically to her, I think her creativity and her ability to reflect this kind of life experience that I know intimately is so inspiring, right? So she's able to to 
and this sounds trite, but be herself in the fullness of her own humanity, right? So she is a British Nigerian woman with a complex past and a uncertain future. And she's able to articulate all of that without saying any of those words, right? So when she's in the song, Point and Kill, speaking in pidgin, but it's like uh, kind of awkward, kind of halting pidgin. I'm like, yeah, I know that because that's how I sound when I speak too. I don't sound good, but like, Whereas I'm a little bit self-conscious about it, she's defiant and unapologetic about the ways that she articulates herself. She's riding on the back of this Okada, which is the motorcycle, and you see these aunties in their gele dancing, and it's, it's this kind of abstracted visual, but at the same time, it's so real, it's so vivid, and it's so true to me, and it helps me to to go forward in the work that I do, not only in terms of my academic work, but also work in community, knowing that I can bring myself and the wholeness of myself into whatever it is that I'm doing, right? Um, I just, I, it, it's incredible work. And for me, I think to, to, to Paul's point, you have to touch on these things. You have to go back to them. You have to remind yourself of them every time you walk into spaces of, of difficulty because it, for me it's 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 like the it's like the battle armor so to speak right and that's that's why I want to choose that song it's the battle armor that helps to weather some of the storms so I really appreciated that thread yeah I mean I I love thank you so much Daniel for mentioning Richard so Richard um, as as Tari knows Richard was on my dissertation committee and I love I love Richard you know he was so he was so dear to me. Um, and you know, for those of you who, who have never had the pleasure of meeting him, just like, let, let me say, he was so cool. You know, he was like such a gentle, like kind, um, and so brilliant, you know, such a thoughtful, brilliant, brilliant person. Um, and a lot of Richard's work has, has guided what I've done. Um, not because I'm interested in pop culture, like I am interested in pop culture in the way that like most people are interested in pop culture, because we is what we consume. It's, you know, it's, it's part of our, the ether in which we move. But mostly because like, you know, Richard, like the very opening of his book in search of the black fantastic starts with, he calls it the familiar dilemma, right? How do those who have been excluded from the dominant order, like, engage nevertheless right and his answer is pop culture you know this is a way in which you know black people have been locked out of the halls of power in so many ways and yet you know we have created these counter publics um for artistic expression and community formation and that has been our political um and yet like that question of like how do those who have been excluded from power you know, like, how, how do we exist? How do we form community? How do we belong? You know, it, it's just like, I think it's, a, it's just a central question. Um, and to me, you know, one of the lessons that I, you know, take from, from Richard's work um, that connects to, you know, what, what Paul Gilroy said about, about George Floyd and, and the video of his murder, murder, which I haven't watched either, to be honest, um, is like, the way in which it seems like so much of our work is actually about the forces that hasten Black death. But what we actually do in Black studies is study Black livingness and Black life. You know, Catherine McKittrick's work, of course, is, is so central to these ideas that like, we're not 
we're not studying like death and domination. We're studying like resilience and resistance and, you know, and reckonings and all the ways in which like, in spite of, you know, these massive centuries long efforts, you know, to exterminate us, like we're still, you know, we're still here, you know, we're still here, we're still doing this. And we do this in ways that might not make sense to, to people who are looking from the outside, right? Maybe pop culture doesn't seem political, you know, and yet, you know, like we, it is, it is to us. Um, and that's where, you know, that's where like the value is. Um, and, you know, just like, the, I guess the last thing I, I'd like to just kind of emphasize about Richard while we're on this topic is like Richard was like a brilliant scholar, but he was also like a very, you know, he, he, he was, he was really moral in all of his dealings, right? Like Richard, um, always did like the, the right thing. You know, and he always, you know, if given the choice to invest in like institutions or people, he chose people, <laughs> you know, he, he was, he was always, he, you know, his, his actions, if you look at, at um, what, you know, what he did at the places where, where he worked at Northwestern, at Toronto, like, um, they provide like a moral compass to how we, like as, as, as scholars of black studies can kind of like, live and be in the world and really practice what we what we preach a line in richard's work that haunts me i guess or forms part of a living memory for helping me to examine and explore the politics of recognition is the line that talks about how it makes sense it is understandable that racialized groups or other groups that are being despised and stigmatized by the state may still wish to receive rewards and protection from it but at the same time as deb was commenting on in regards to richard's who was someone who was always holding ideas in tension, comfortable with ambiguity. When I read In Search of the Black Fantastic, I'm also mindful that that comment about groups acknowledging and working towards rewards and protection from the state is rounded out and completed with a comment about the limits to the politics of recognition. And while I'm thankful for everything you're sharing around counterpublics and thinking about popular cultures, I'm also wondering if we could more directly address that question around the politics of recognition and particularly how it pertains to our work in university settings and your engagements with liberal public spheres, such as national newspapers like the Globe and Mail. I'm wondering more specifically if you can say 
a bit more about the strategies, the approaches, the tactics that you use to smuggle moments of dissidence into liberal public spheres? I think that's a, that's a great question. And I think it's one that I'm constantly asking myself. How can I, given the various institutional structures, given the various constellation of actors who are comfortable in a particular kind of mode and affect, how can I disrupt that in a way that allows us to, to move to a different possibility, while at the same time, recognizing that it's okay sometimes for people to have that affect, right? And so I think about this a lot as it relates to Black community organizations and a kind of hierarchical structure of leadership that often emerges, um, that, that, that especially in the Canadian context, speaks quite forcefully to, to a liberal affect in in its politics, oftentimes in universities, but outside of it as well. I ask myself, well, what are the ways that I can, with love and care and respect, ask people to maybe decide to ask a different question of themselves and ask a question about what the community and communities that they represent actually demand and what it is that they're giving. Um, and so strategically speaking, oftentimes it comes in the forms of panels, right? So I was on a panel, uh, maybe uh, it, it might've been a week, a week and a half ago, um, where we were discussing data, data collection, and someone asked a question about hate crimes. And they said, well, you know, there's this increase in hate crimes uh, that comes from, you know, this hatred in the United States. And I, I'm curious, I'm curious as to how we can act as a bulwark against this hate. And I sat there, someone else answered before me, and this is this thing that's happened a few times, right? It's a university space. It's one of these <laughs> liberal public spheres and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm tapping my foot. And that's always, if you want to know when I'm about to, to go left, it's, <laughs> it's when I start tapping my foot and I just, I'm thinking and I'm thinking and I'm like, okay, well, how am I going to answer this in such a way that that while still adhering to some of the norms of the space, absolutely discards the other norms. And so my response was, well, I can understand why you would feel like these things are new. But in fact, uh, the first race riot in North America happened in Shelburne, Nova Scotia in 1792. And in fact, before then, we have the, the systematic genocide and land theft of indigenous peoples uh, that has been going on since European arrivals in Turtle Island. So perhaps in order to act as a bulwark against hate crimes, maybe we need to reflect on the things that we've been doing for a few hundred years and maybe shift some of the dynamics in the space. And there was a bit of an awkward silence because, you know, I don't think in a room full of university presidents, people often talk about land theft. But at the same time, <laughs> I think that it's important to illustrate to people that they're implicated in the things that they like to pontificate about. And in fact, we can have a different conversation if we just try a little bit to acknowledge what, what is inconvenient, but what is staring us right in the face, right? And so it's about gently but firmly nudging us to a different conversational space in, in some of those moments. I hope that makes sense. 
Yeah, I I like that, Terry. I mean, I think so. I I think a lot about the university as I've been working in these spaces for a, a long time, um, and I, you know, I think um, universities are a lot of things. They're you know, they purport to be these these places where like ideas are debated. You know, many people see universities as like just the manifestations of neoliberalism. Um, and the way that I see university, you know, is that it's it's a structure of domination. You know, it's not unlike other structures of domination. Um, you know, and it is it is a formidable one precisely because it's wrapped up in all these other ideas about what universities are and who they serve. Um, and you know, and their function in an educated, free, democratic society, um, and yet they are also, you know, the like very clearly to me, like the protectors of white supremacy and patriarchy and heteronormativity. Um, and so, for me, like the question of, of of kind of being in this university and trying to be subversive within this space is, is quite important, and. And, you know, and so I, I think like for me, I, I do a couple of things. One is that, um, you know, there's a, a great article that Robin Kelly published in the Boston Review years ago. You know, it was when Black Lives Matter um, activists on campus first started, you know, agitating for changes um, in universities and in North America. And one of the things that he wrote was like, you know, do not seek love from institutions that are incapable of loving you back. You know, like really, and I think about that a lot because so much of what we do as academics is about gaining, you know, value and prestige and and recognition in these systems which were designed to exclude us. You know, and, and so I'm not particularly invested, like for me, in in kind of gaining the, those those accolades. Like I'm not, like I I do not. You know, I, I do not love my institution. I like. I'm glad I have a job. I'm not grateful I have a job, but I'm glad I have one. But like, I, I refuse. You know, to to kind of be tricked into loving white supremacy in that way. Um, and like, what that means for me is that in thinking about ways to be subversive within the structure of domination, and thinking about, you know, as like Moton and Harney wrote, like being like fugitives. You know, within within the university. I, I, I often find myself in a position of creating kind of like, I guess the undercommons is, is, is the right word for it, like kind of parallel but shadow institutions um, to, do what, to do what I want, you know, according to like what, what I find important. So just like a really quick example, you know, in my department, uh, which is about to be TARS department, we have like a formal like mentorship program where like you know, senior faculty members, like mentor, junior faculty members. And I just emailed my chair and I was like, I'm going to like, I'm going to mentor like Tari and, and, and this other incoming, you know, professor, but I don't want to, don't put me as, a, as their mentor because I'm going to do it, you know, but I don't want, I don't want you to know about it. I don't want to be held accountable to your standards. I'm going to do it like my way. <laughs> um, and like, and, you know, and I do that a lot. Like I have these like, parallel kind of shadow institutions, um, one of which is actually called like the Subversive Academy, you know, like I have like a, 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 a fugitive reading group, you know, where anyone, anyone can come learn about abolitionist politics, but it is not part of or sanctioned by the university and yet operates alongside these institutions. And part of the reason why I think that's necessary is just, you know, like these 
I, I don't see I don't see these institutions as fundamentally changing. Um, one because like institutions are hard to change; they're sticky. You know, like they're 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 more likely to stay the same. It's really hard um, to to enact meaningful, substantive change. Two, because there's an awful lot of people invested in making sure they don't change, right? It's an awful lot of white dudes named John who are like perfectly happy with institutions working exactly as they've worked, um, you know. Uh, and 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 third, like I, don't, I feel like I can I can enact like the the kind of, of values, the kind of change that like I want to see, you know, in my students and my colleagues and my friends and kind of in my community um, without the university being in my business in that way. And to be clear, I can do all of this because I have tenure, you know, I am like a CRC. I have like, I think I have like the positional power to now work outside of those structures. And that's, I think is, is really, really important. And that is key. Like I did not have this freedom when I was junior faculty, when I was much more insecure. Um, but now that I have that power, I am absolutely going to use it to like destroy white supremacy. And if I happen to destroy the institutions that support white supremacy, like our universities, that's, that's okay with me. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to go along with that. That's, that's fine. More than fine, really. Uh, thanks so much for sharing ideas to help us think about mentorship and philosophies of mentorship, as well as teaching. And since you're inviting us to think about what it is to be within the university, as well as beyond and outside it, I'm wondering if you might be open to saying a bit more about your forthcoming book there, and your interest in working with a publisher that isn't a university press. And maybe Terry, would you be open to speaking about how you're addressing these questions in relation to your socially engaged research? Or put a bit differently, how you're pursuing the process of socially engaged research while also pursuing academic credentials and successfully defending your dissertation. Or maybe you can talk about it more generally in relation to the ways in which you're navigating the challenges and also the opportunities that universities offer? Great questions, Daniel. Um, let me start. I'm trying to make this, this story kind of as, as, as brief as I can, because it's actually quite a long story of how this book came to be. Um, so I have my forthcoming book is called The Long Road Home on Blackness and Belonging, and it's coming out in September. Terry's nodding because he's read it. Go buy it. Go buy it. Sorry to interrupt, but you got you got to go pick it up. I, I, I'm i sorry. I don't mean to interrupt on the podcast. I, I, I'm sorry. Go buy this book. Period. Okay. I'm being quiet again. <laughs> Thanks, Terry. That's so sweet. I mean, um, it's, like the, it's, it's a bit of a story about how it came to be, but the short version is... Um, I had a, an article come out in the Global Mail, actually, again, and it, it was published just 
just after George Floyd was murdered, it was already coming out to be clear. Like, and the article, the article is called The Long Road Home. And it was just like, I knew I was moving back to Canada. I had lived in the US for 10 years. I just had a lot of feelings about coming back to Canada um, in part because, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm black, I'm Canadian. I grew up outside Toronto. My dad's family um, uh, is descended from the refugees from American slavery. So, you know, my, my grandfather's grandfather escaped slavery in the U.S. Um, and came to Canada through the Underground Railroad and, and stayed in, in southwestern Ontario. And so, like, when I moved to the U.S., I was like, I am I'm going home. You know, this is where I'm from. You know, these are these are my people is like really like African-Americans. Like, that's really where I'm from, because in part, as anyone who grew up black in Canada knows, like Canada has not been particularly welcoming to, to black folks. Um, and when I decided to move back to Canada after having lived in the U.S. for 10 years, I just I, I you know, I, I felt I had a lot of complicated feelings about it. I had friends and family who were very much like, aren't you so happy to be moving back to Canada? You know, because it's so racist in the U.S. I moved back when Trump was still president, you know. And, you know, Trump was a lot of things. Um, and uh, I was kind of like, I don't know, like kind of, I, I guess, you know, not in the way that that those well-meaning white people thought of, like being happy to move back. Um, and so I, I wrote this article in the Globe and Mail and the, the opinion editor, whose name is, is Mark Medley, he's a lovely person. And he's actually, we went to high school together kind of randomly. He was the one who was like, Deb, you know, I think this is a book. And I was like, no, no, like, no, who's going to like, no, no one's going to read a book on like my experiences. That's ridiculous. And he was kind of like, I actually, you know, I really think it is like, let me introduce you to my agent. And so I got an agent and I wrote this proposal and it was kind of sold at auction. And a, and a lot of presses were actually very, very interested in it. Part of this was like a, a particular moment in time. Right. Remember, this is like during this moment of racial reckoning. So. So there was a lot of interest um, and uh, the book, you know, so it's, it follows me like it um, begins outside of Toronto where I grew up and then it kind of moves to the four places I lived in the US, each of which have this really interesting kind of history um, of racism and interesting relationship to, to race and democracy. So, you know, I, I lived in Boston for a year um, which, of course, is the birthplace of American freedom, quote unquote. Um, and then I lived in Athens, Ohio, which is in Appalachia, um, you know, which has, is, you know, the, the I don't know if the birthplace, but it, there's a lot of concern about the white working class. Um, you know, J.D. Vance's very famous Hillbilly Elegy was written in a town not unlike the one where I was living. And then I moved to Chicago uh, and like was finally in a black community and it was like the era of like when Black Lives Matter first emerged. Um, and then I moved out to Oregon, which is a super interesting, really interesting state. It was literally founded as a white ethno state, you know, like literally black people were not allowed to move into the state um, and still features like these really violent clashes between anti-fascists and fascists. Um, and then kind of moved across the border uh, and settled in Montreal, which you know, for any listeners who are not in Quebec, Quebec politics are very interesting and are often not commented on by the rest of Canada. Like so much of what happens here, I don't, you know, it's just like unnoticed by the rest of Canada. Um, and Montreal in particular has this wild history of transnational black activism, really, you know, like 
you know, like Marcus Garvey was here and like Malcolm X's parents met here. And, you know, there was like the 1968, like Congress of, of Black Writers, you know, there's these really interesting histories, which like David Austin has written about, Sean Mills has written about. Um, and yet today, you know, there is also like a huge kind of portion of like my white francophone colleagues who think that they should be able to say the n-word in their classrooms right and so like there's really interesting things happening around like blackness and, and race um and so i so i wrote this book and it's it's meant for a general audience um and it is um you know my 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 editors have always called it a memoir and i've always pushed back against that because i'm i'm deeply deeply uncomfortable with the idea that people are going to read this book and know things about me it keeps me awake at night and yet like my experience from from being a decent teacher is that the more like concrete you can make these experience for these experiences for people like the the, the more understanding like the more resonance it has um and so far you know the folks who and like i actually i i let all of my my students in like my honor seminar I, like they they were so instrumental in helping me think through things that I sent them all the manuscript when I finished it. And like so many of the students of color like wrote back to me and were like, this speaks to me in such deep ways um, that I have a, I'm hopeful, like, I think it doesn't suck is like what I, I, I think it's like, I think it, I think it doesn't suck. I think people will, will find it useful. I think it, it brings a lot of the insights of Black studies to a broad audience, which is is what it was intended to do, particularly because, and like, I don't mean to throw any shade at all, but like there is um, a, a version of Black studies in which the writing is particularly opaque and inaccessible. And like, you, I just talked about how much I love Richard Eiten, but I have read this book 20 times. like. And there's parts of it that I'm like, I don't know what you're saying, Richard. You know, like there are parts of it that, that I don't understand still. Um, and so like, I think that like one of the, the strengths of the book is that it translates a lot of a, like, you know, a, like a, a huge body of work into terms that I think people can like pick up and, and, and it, will, it will resonate with them. So I don't know, like, well, I'll talk, talk to me again in a few months, like when it comes out, we'll see. It could be, it could be a giant flop, I don't know. Listen, Dev is, uh, you know, I, I said I'm not going to gas you up again on this podcast, as I did at the start. <laughs> this, it doesn't suck having read it. Yeah, it doesn't suck is a bit of an understatement. So, you know, re repeating the message, go go pick up your coffee, just do yourself a favor. Um, but I think that you're speaking to this kind of profoundly political act, which is sometimes especially I think in moments that are contentious, we need to speak directly and clearly towards a group of people that are willing to hear, right? And so I think that like, I, I, I've been thinking through that as I'm writing my dissertation, right? Um, and my dissertation is autoethnographic in nature, which means that I'm, I'm reflecting on myself and my experiences. And so in some ways, what, Deb is writing and what I'm writing, they don't look the same, but they have some some echoes of each other, right? Like a, a bit of a bit of resonance, so to speak. Um, but the part of the reason I'm choosing that approach is because I want to make these these dynamics and these in these stories 
is as clear as possible because they've helped to shape me and they've helped to shape I think a profoundly important political kind of orientation, right? And so I, I focus on black self-determination. And the reason that I focus on black self-determination is that I'm incredibly invested in the idea that we can collectively through solidarity across our differences, build communities where black people can thrive, right? Black people, wherever they're coming from, black people with all of their disparate histories, black people without flattening those disparate histories or discarding parts of those different histories, we can build communities of interdependence and care. But I think that in order to identify how that works, I have to talk about who is in those communities? What are they doing? What does it feel like, right? Like, what does that community look like? What does the air smell like? Like, what's what's resonating here? And so when I'm talking about, you know, Daniel asked about socially engaged research. My research is profoundly shaped by, uh, inspired by, crafted by the community members that have made me who I am, right? So I'm speaking from my perspective, but I'm always thinking about the ideas of reciprocity. So what can I give back? Um, and one of the things that I'm going to produce out of this out of this work is a document, and I've said this from the beginning, my project isn't complete until I do this. So I'm gonna publish, I'm gonna finish my dissertation, I'm gonna publish my dissertation. I'm also gonna publish a document of best practices that I've learned throughout collecting this data um, in my dissertation. And I'm gonna publish that under Creative Commons licensing and give that to different community organizations and folks that are organizing in Halifax and the re and and further afield of course but the reason for that is that this knowledge is not mine <laughs> I've been fortunate enough to engage with it I've been fortunate enough to be graced by people I've been fortunate enough to 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 be to be in the spaces where people trust me enough to talk to me but it's I don't own that Right. Like and, and if I'm not giving back, if I don't if I don't give a piece of myself, both in terms of what I'm actually articulating in this dissertation, but in, in kind of material support to creating those communities, then I'm not really doing anything at all. And so that's that to me is a key piece of how I'm shaping my work. Um, and it's a key piece of how I've been working so far. So um Last, I guess it was earlier this year, uh, myself and some colleagues published a report around defunding police in Halifax. Um, and that work is implicated in my dissertation, but it's not my dissertation. I'm not, I didn't, I didn't pursue that as a, as a means of research. I pursued that because this is my community and I want to work to make it better. And if it, if my research can help that, then that's great. And if it doesn't, then that's fine. But the point is that that's what the main thing is. And so when I think about socially engaged research, it's about keeping the main thing, the main thing, which is for me, helping to create these communities of black, thriving black flourish. One of the goals of the podcast is to think about and cultivate intergenerational communication and another ambition that we have is addressing the point that not all academics are intellectuals and not all intellectuals are academics so we're interested in intellectual work 
outside as well as inside of academia. And trying to open up space to consider how many people who are esteemed as academics are not just academics, right? Um, if we're to think about the humanistic practice. So Richard is a DJ as well as a professor. Paul Gilroy is a music critic as well as a distinguished professor. Sylvia Winter's training as a dancer informs her writing and her humanistic praxis as well. And one of the questions we like to end with to address the personal as well as the professional, the sense in which those categories of personal and professional are complex, always contested, is with addressing a question sharing a question that Richard often like to ask his friends and colleagues. That is to say, we like to end the podcasts by asking our guests, what are you currently listening to? And I think given the conversation today has been as much about reading and rereading as carefully listening. Perhaps we could end by talking about what you're currently listening to and also what you're currently reading and or rereading. I do, but my answer is gonna gonna ruin the conversation a bit. Actually that might be good because then Tari you can bring us back up. So um what I'm what I'm currently listening to, I've been listening actually for the past couple of years to this amazing um, um, artist named uh, Karim Oulet. Um and he, you know, he I don't know if he's from Montreal, um, but uh, he actually passed away um, a, a few months ago, and I just like I love his music so much, and um, you know the fact that he he died and he died young is actually quite related to what I want to say about what I'm reading, which is that I am I'm reading nothing right now, and the reason I'm reading nothing is because I've been quite ill for the past six months, and I don't have the energy, you know, to 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 put a, to put like the same amount of time into my work as I had, kind of like while I was working on the manuscript, and I just like I just kind of like wanted to to mention. You know, while we're talking about Black Studies and we've talked about Richard um, and we talk about kind of like working in universities and universities being these structures of white supremacy, like for me, like it's not a coincidence that so many of us die early. You know, to, to be, you know, Richard was 51, Bell Hooks was what, it was 69, Charles Mills was 70, Leanne Fuji, who was also a friend of mine at the University of Toronto was 50, you know, like, like it's not 
it's not a coincidence. Like we feel like there's a weight to racism and there's a weight to doing this work that affects us, our bodies in ways that like you don't realize until you are in a health crisis, like as I have been. And so I just, so I also want to kind of throw it out there that like, like, I wish I was reading something, but like, but I, I don't have the capacity to do it right now. And uh, if there are any, like, especially grad students listening, um, because in grad school, like the, the hustle, like the grind is part of the mentality. And like, I want to tell you all to like, to stop, you know, and to, and like, that is part of the, the trick of capitalism is like the conflation of our identities and our work. Like our work is still important, um, but at the end of the day, like this is this is a job, you know, and like and, and it's important to to treat it as as such, right? Like, and uh, if you have commitments outside of this job, that's that's good and that's important, and make sure it gives you life instead of instead of taking it. I told you it was a downer, Tara. You should have gone first. <laughs> well, it's 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 actually it's a downer, but it's actually kind of connected to to what I've been listening to uh, weirdly. So. Um, I mean, outside of the new Kendrick Lamar album, which kind of disappointed me in some ways, so I don't really want to talk about it. And it's it's kind of it, it's it's almost like it's almost like kind of like uh, at least for me a bit kind of like passe to constantly talk about because I talk about Kendrick all the time. Like I have a I have, I feel like I have a relationship with this one, but his last album kind of disappointed me. But maybe it's because I'm not thinking about it deeply enough. But Moving right past that, there's this artist from Chicago, his name is Saba, right? And he is, um, I think he's the same age as me. Um, and his work has always been really focused on evoking this kind of like very plaintive kind of beauty um, musically. He's a rapper, but he's got this kind of sonic sensibility of a kind of jazz artist and i'm not talking about kind of like your fusion artists that are way off the map he's almost like he's almost kind of like a cool jazz artist of the 50s in the sense that like his composed his, his compositions are really tight they're really succinct they're, they're these kind of really gentle and kind of what's the word bucolic um beats that he's making but he has this album that came out in 2018 care for me where his He's basically talking about death, right? Early death. His cousin got killed. And he has this song called Fighter. And in this song, he has, it, there's this kind of like recursive loop where he's talking about all of these fights that happen. So there's this scrap that he has with some friends outside. And he was fighting with his spouse because he speaks over her and she says, well, you, you don't hear me out and I feel muted. And, and then he goes, well, that's my fault. But then he he kind of talks about fighting his family and fighting himself to get out of bed and that tiredness of not wanting to keep going. And I've been listening to that a lot recently, um, that song a lot recently, um, and thinking about the ways that the past couple of years have been a lot of grief. Like, I've been incredibly blessed and I'm very thankful for all of the wonderful things that have happened. But I've also been doing a lot of grieving. <laughs> I've been fighting a lot. And some days I don't want to get out of bed. Um, and it's okay to, to feel that way. Um, and I think his music helps me to, to realize that. So 
you know, check Saba out because I think his music is really great. His most recent album kind of takes an uptick from that and speaks about joy in more considered ways. You should definitely go and listen to his music. It's really fantastic. As for what I've been reading, I've been reading a book by Adam Elliott Cooper. It's called Black Resistance to British, British Policing. Um, it's incredible. It's like, I, I had this moment where I was like, I don't know if you saw this um, during the Trump era, but there was some kind of reporter who was working on this story for years and years. And he tweeted because I think Trump had just like said he'd done something. He said, I've been working on this for two years and you just tweeted it out or something like that. And it was this like meme that people use. And I feel that way when I read this book, because I'm like, I've been working on this dissertation for two years and you just published it. <laughs> like, he just, And I mean that in the most complimentary sense, as in, I've never, I've never read something that on every single page, I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish I had written this. Oh, this is perfect. And he's, he's just tracing this genealogy of this resistance so perfectly. He weaves in the history into every single chapter. He names all of the things that I'm like, right, I want to name this. I want to name the role that gender is playing in these resistance movements and why it is that Black women are so often at the forefront of these movements, but also the tax that that takes on them and on their on their sense of self, right? He 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 so artfully weaves in the voices of the different community members that he's interviewing. It's it's an incredible book. Um, I I I recommend it to anybody. You know, I, I've I also kind of had that feeling about Deb's book, but we're not going to go there because again, I'm not gassing her up anymore. She's told me I'm not allowed to compliment her on her book anymore, so I won't do it. They'll go pick it up when it comes out in September or pre-order it beforehand. But yeah. That's what I've been reading. That's what I've been listening to. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure to dream with you, conspire with you, and imagine possibilities. And why I'm so grateful for this conversation is that it speaks to so many of the things that we've been thinking about in the Black Studies program as well. Is that sense of feeling that our ideas, our ambitions, our dreams are not solely individual or idiosyncratic or completely in left field, but that the things that we're feeling often on our own, often in silos, are shared by others who are working and struggling for similar cultural and political and intellectual project. Uh, so I'm reminded that Catherine and I were talking the other day about whether we should start every meeting we have in Black Studies with a reflection from the NAP ministry about rest is resistance and also about how caring for each other not only helps us to navigate the university, but also provides us with space, with time, with support networks to imagine and build a world of a more human face. I love that. Wow, what 
an inspiring and inspired conversation. What are your thoughts? Um, I found the entire conversation incredibly stimulating, but you know, just the way they talked about that discussion between the parallels between the healthcare system and the political state of the world was such an interesting comparison I had yet to see, um, you know, that idea of the two pandemics. And it's, it's something that we have been seeing for, let's say the past two and a half years now, um, but a conversation that has, for my experience and from the spaces that I've been in is a conversation that I've yet had. Um, so, you know, talking about the state of our healthcare system, the public health system, um, and just the way in which our world has also responded to several social injustices, um, it's, it's, it's mind boggling <laughs> how, you know, we can constantly see these injustices happening in various institutions and the similarities and the demographics that it's affecting are so similar, yet the injustices are still um, occurring. So. That was such that was such a, a strong a strong point made um, by Tari and Deb as well, which I truly enjoyed. Yeah, I agree with everything that's been said so far. I really appreciated how both Tari and Deb were so open about the anxieties that come with challenging the status quo during the process of their various projects. I think an important lesson to take away from this conversation is to really practice being aware and conscious of the power dynamics that fuel the institutions you're a part of, whether it's politics, the built environment, the healthcare system, or educational institutions. There are systemic discriminatory and racist ideology embedded into spaces that we interact with on a daily basis. And what Tari and Deb both showcased in the way they spoke about how they engage with the education system through their teaching and with Canadian race politics with their research practice is that being aware of these exclusionary algorithms allows you the opportunity to unravel, disrupt, and challenge hegemonic systems of power. I particularly appreciated Deb's mention of what she calls shadow institutions. As a recent grad, I wish that there were more avenues of care similar to what she's created, where she is supporting students outside of what the university system allows. And I think that goes back to also the, the, the point that was mentioned about working in institutions that are not capable of loving you back, you know, and how draining that work can be and exactly what you were saying, Sally. Mm. And I loved how they supported each other, right? Like, they don't just talk about what it is to have an ethics of care. They are addressing what it is to live that caring relationship with our friends, with our colleagues, and what it means to put ourselves out there, right? Like, particularly when Deb's thinking about her book, right? What it means for her to share herself with the world. Uh, when Terry's thinking about his dissertation and also ethnographic research, what does it mean for him to share so much of himself, but also to acknowledge that he doesn't claim ownership of this. If he is to challenge private ownership, certain types of racial capitalism, again, this idea that this isn't just rhetoric. This isn't just something that people say. This is about how these ideas, how these concepts inform the way in which we live. And I like how they pushed us to think about the politics of care, the politics of rest, and also Black life and livingness. I can't think of 
a conversation that better encapsulates the hopes and aspirations of Black Studies at Queens and this podcast. Um, but please, um, if you have feedback for us, if you've been inspired the way that we've been inspired, if you've been provoked into new frames of thinking, or if you just want to share your activist or your intellectual work with us, please feel free to reach out to us at the Black Studies Podcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, where we have the handle at Black Studies Podcast. And wherever you listen to your favorite podcast, please rate and review us. We'd really love to hear from you. We'll be dropping another episode next week and hope you have a wonderful week filled with joy. Take care, everyone.